702 on a Friday. Happy Friday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura Day. There are three dealerships to serve you better. North Shore Acura, Acura of Langley, and Burrard Acura on Terminal Avenue. We are also brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. North Star! Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. Okay, we spent a good hour talking, seething, venting about the Vancouver Canucks. Maybe it's a time, albeit briefly, to go somewhere else into the world of sports. And those plucky, resilient, and they've warmed the cockles of Jason Bruff's heart, the Seattle Seahawks. Three and three now, which is good enough for right near the top of the NFC West standings. Uh, they've got a game against the Chargers on Sunday to break it all down and talk a lot more Seahawks. Joining us now, ESPN's Brady Henderson here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Brady. How are you? Morning, fellas. Doing great. How are you? We're good, thanks. It's refreshing to be able to come in here on a Friday and talk to you and not have to talk to you about Vancouver, or Vancouver Seattle's wo- woeful defense from the week before. As a matter of fact, that 19-9 to victory over the Cardinals last week was great. It was very stifling. Jordan Brooks said they really needed it. What was the, the vibe in the field this week when all of the guys were talking about the defense and how it played in a win, finally, over the Arizona Cardinals? Yeah, Jordan Brooks was pretty honest yesterday. Somebody asked him how badly they needed that performance, and he just said a lot. Yeah. And he said that twice. And so, um, you know, there wasn't – I didn't get the sense in the locker room afterwards. Certainly there was a lot of celebration and maybe even some relief. I, I did not get the sense that anybody was really declaring that Seattle's, you know, slow start on defense is entirely over. Um so I, I do kind of feel like you need to see it a little bit more. I mean, there was so much bad football over the first five games from that group that I, I don't think I'm ready to say that they've completely turned it around. But, um, you know, that said, we have seen them do this in the past few years, and you just had to figure that eventually it was going to change, and, and maybe it is now. Um, I know that Arizona offense has been struggling quite a bit. Um, and so I, I, I think I kind of need to see it before I'm convinced that it's that they've completely turned it around again. But – I think one encouraging thing is that there seems to be a reason for it. And they've talked about kind of a a schematic um, adjustment that they made, which was to let their defensive linemen be more aggressive with the way that they attack the ball. And there was less, you know, what's called two gapping where the idea when you two gap is to sort of hold at the point of attack and to be, you know, so where you can control the gap on either side of you, there was really more penetrating upfield, and I think that's why you saw them have the day that they did with the six sacks. Uh, they really stopped Arizona's running game, at least in terms of their running backs. Kyler Murray had 100 rushing yards, but they really shut down Arizona's running backs in the run game. So that, I think, was encouraging, and I imagine that given how well it worked that you're going to see them continue to do that, and maybe that does help them um, sustain the success that they had on defense in that game. Uh, you know, it's it's been a really interesting season, and it's only six games deep so far, but we've had you on since the beginning, and I think we've made it pretty clear, Jason and I, that we had certain expectations and realistic ones for the season and kind of what we hoped the end game would be. It hasn't really gone according to plan in a good way. Jason said a couple times that this team's actually really endeared itself to him, and part of the reason, I think, is because of this rookie class that has come in 
and really given hope that this isn't about a bunch of meandering, middle-of-the-road players that are just going to get this team to five or six wins and get them a high draft pick. There really seems like there's something there. You wrote about this during the week. So you got uh, the cornerbacks, Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant have been great. Uh, the tackles, Charles Cross and Abraham Lucas have been great. And now I think the most ballyhooed one, or the most enticing one, all due respect to Woolen, is Kenneth Walker III at running back because the job is his and he looks like a really electrifying runner. All of a sudden, with the Geno Smith story in this great rookie class, I'm going to say it. There's some real room for optimism here with this club and with the direction that they're going in. Yeah, there really is. And and when you you know count Boye and Mafe in that group, I know he hasn't really stood out like some of the other guys, but – that is six six of their nine uh, you know draft picks that are either starting or contributing big time for them at least in terms of playing time like filling significant roles that's massive for them and then you know you've even got uh, an undrafted guy Joey Blunt who's been one of their better special teams players so you it really seemed like there was an opportunity for their rookies to make an impact this season just because there was the obvious openings, you know, at various positions on both sides of the ball. But you'd also figured that, you know, Clint Hurt would be more willing to play young players than uh, Ken Norton Jr. was. But Pete Carroll and John Snyder, and they both said this, those guys didn't even think that there would be this much contribution this early uh, from that rookie class. So they've got to be absolutely encouraged by that. And I've said that, you know, this season – this is, it's not a full rebuild, but it is a transition season. And I've said that, you know, the measure of, of a success of this season isn't necessarily going to be whether they make the playoffs. Now, <laughs> that may even be changing now because the division looks wide open. But at least before this season, my thought was, you know, this season will be a success if you can identify that you've got, that you can say at the end of the season with a straight face that you've got a legitimate young core uh, that looks like it could carry you into the future. And I, I can kind of, you know, go back to the 2011 and 12 seasons where uh, really the 11 season in particular, where they didn't make the playoffs that year, but you could tell like they have some dudes on that team, some young guys that they drafted that look like they were ready to pop. And I've kind of said that, look, this season is going to be a success, even if you don't make the playoffs. But if you can say at the end of the season that it kind of feels like that um, and look, not only are they, you know, could they be in the playoff mix, they also might have their quarterback too, which is, it's just all, you know, things are really looking up for them. And I, I think I would say like, regardless, still, regardless of how this season plays out, even if they don't make the playoffs, the the future looks pretty bright for them, I think. Where did they find Tariq Woolen? Like when, when did they first get eyes on him? Because I can't imagine they were heavily scouting the University of Texas at San Antonio. Uh, was it the Senior Bowl where they first learned about him? Was it the Combine? Because he's a fifth-round pick, and he's looking like he might win Defensive Rookie of the Year. Yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. They, they, they've got an area scout in every area, and those guys, uh, they really try not to miss on anybody. And they've got eyes on him, but, you know, certainly – I think the combine was a huge deal for him just to be able to, you know, put his athletic testing numbers sort of, you know, on record and, and where you could really compare him apples to apples wise with, you know, it, it's one thing to see it on film when he's playing against conference USA talent, but, you know, to really be able to compare it uh, to everybody else. I think that was a big deal. I think with Woolen, that's a good reminder that, you know, we tend to, I think unfairly look at a draft prospect and say that, you know, from the moment he's drafted, he's destined 
to be one thing. He's destined to either be great, to be not very good, or to be somewhere in between. And that whatever is going to happen to him is going to happen regardless of what happens around him. I think we often lose sight of the fact that there's a lot of things that can, you know, play into that. There's a lot of things that can influence that. And coaching is a big one. And I really think this is a great job of the coaching staff in molding all of the talent that he has in ways that, you know, look, he was not playing like this at UTSA. Let me tell you, like there, he was not picking off four passes in four straight games. And, uh, you know, I think he's got the best uh, or second best passer rating allowed as the nearest defender. Like you were not seeing this in college from him. So Seahawks coaches have really done a nice job of reaching him and of sort of molding him. And I think that's a good reminder that this was a, a great pick by the front office, but this is also a nice coaching job. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that's true in other cases with their draft picks as well. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's wild to think that, you know, he has gone from a guy who's only played two years of, of cornerback in college guy who wasn't really expected to, win a starting job right away and now he's legitimately the I think the front runner for defensive rookie of the year of course Charles Cross was their first pick in the draft ninth overall uh, offensive tackle out of Mississippi State Um, so people knew a lot about him heading into the draft can you put into words just how big a responsibility how big a job how much they're asking of a rookie to be the starting left tackle in the NFL it's a big deal, and I was talking to a former NFL left tackle named Ray Roberts about this. Ray, Ray played for the Seahawks and the Lions, had a long NFL career, and he was just talking about all of the things that you learn uh, from week to week as a rookie tackle, things that you just you can't learn unless you're in the fire. And he was talking about all the different ways that really good pass rushers will try to beat you and, and all the different styles that those guys have. And there is just so much that is being thrown at those guys, and Ray was really in awe of how well that Charles Cross and Abe Lucas on the right side had handled that. And, um, you know, he, I think he made a, a really good um, observation, which was just one way that Charles Cross has grown sort of in that knowledge of opposing pass rushers. And he's talking about how, you know, in that first game against Denver, you know, he allowed a pair of sacks late in that game to Bradley Chubb when he really kind of let, he sort of caught Chubb and didn't really get his hands out and thinking that he could absorb him and then push him around the backside. And he couldn't do that. And now Ray observed that he's really seen Charles Cross do a better job of sort of initiating that contact and creating space with his hands to not let rushers get into his body. And so um, I thought that was just a cool sort of nuanced look at a way that a left tackle can grow, you know, a rookie left tackle can grow from week to week. And, you know, I, I looked at, um, I, I refer to the ESPN's pass block win rate numbers a lot. And it shows that those guys are both in the top half among all starting offensive tackles in terms of how well they're sustaining their blocks. I think Lucas is 14th. So he's in the top 25% crosses right in the middle of the pack. That that may not seem all that impressive until again, you realize that these are rookies who are being thrown into the fire. And uh, so it, it is really impressive what they're doing so far. Uh, it is the Seahawks and the Chargers in Los Angeles on Sunday. Chargers, I believe, are currently listed as a five-and-a-half-point favorite. I don't know if the Lions moved on that or any. We'll check it out later when we do our locks of the week. It should be a good one. Every team in the NFC West now has three wins. So uh, the standings are tight, and the Seahawks got a chance to get to four on Sunday. Brady, thanks a lot for doing this today, bud. We appreciate it. Enjoy the game this weekend. We'll do this again next Friday. All right, fellas. See ya. 
See you later. Thanks, Brady, Brady Henderson, ESPN's NFL Nation, here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. So, on the subject of those Seattle Seahawks and that uh, NFC West, I just alluded to the fact that on Thursday Night Football, uh, a lot happened both on the field and off the field. The Arizona Cardinals finally broke out with some points, not necessarily through their offense because they had a couple pick sixes, but they put up 40-plus points in a win over the Saints. That gets them to three wins. They're three and four. While that was going on, another team from the NFC West, the San Francisco 49ers, orchestrated a really big and really significant trade acquiring star Carolina Panthers running back Christian McCaffrey for a bounty of picks. No first-round picks go, but a pair of seconds, I think a third and a fifth. So a lot of draft capital for a midseason trade for Christian McCaffrey. Didn't Carolina kind of go all in at the beginning of last season, and now they're all out? Yeah, I mean they they well, I mean they paid Matt Rule seventy million dollars to leave <laughs> Baylor to become their head coach, and now they owe him forty. Carolina, yeah, Carolina. The thing with the NFL, in everybody's defense, who just decides to abandon a plan, is it is a lot quicker, way easier to rebuild. Yeah, you stockpile picks, you get about four or five guys. I mean, Tariq Woolen, you can cut guys. Yeah, that's, you that's just a get big rid deal. of them if you don't like them. Yeah, Tariq Woolen, for example was a fifth-round pick in last year's draft, mm-hmm. and now he's a potential Defensive Rookie of the Year candidate. Yeah. So guys that you get out of the draft can jump in and be difference makers right away. Anyway, we're, we're getting off topic here. The division just got a lot more interesting. As far as I'm concerned, McCaffrey is a star in this league, but you don't see a lot of midseason trades in the NFL like dramatically alter the course of a team. Now, I know that the Rams did it last year when they picked up Odell Beckham Jr. and then uh, Vaughn Miller. Like, that kind of put them over the top, I would say. That made them from being a great team to an elite team, and they won the Super Bowl. Those guys left. They're not as good. Right. This is different for a variety of reasons. One, uh, you got to get up to speed. with what, And I know a lot of the teams call the same stuff and maybe have similar terminology, but it's a brand-new team. It's a brand-new playbook. It's a brand-new offense, mm-hmm. right? Apparently, they're going to use him this weekend, and they're going to put him in a red zone package so he can get a little bit more comfortable. The other thing is McCaffrey's hurt all the time. He's chronically injury prone, right? right? So I don't know, and I also He's don't. He's only 26. I know. It seems like he's been in the league longer. Because every year he gets hurt, and then you're yeah. like, oh, Christian McCaffrey's coming back. Anyway. But that is an interesting 49ers offense with the weapons they've got and mm-hmm. yet the quarterback. Right. Right. So you can say that this trade makes it easier on Jimmy G For in sure. some ways. But it also makes it harder because the expectations are that much higher. Like, they for totally, sure totally, should win. Totally. Don't you think they should for sure win the division? That trade is significant enough that it would make them the, the favorite to win the NFC, NFC West, especially since all the teams are basically 500 right now. Like, we're yeah. all starting from scratch, right? The interesting thing is going to be how quickly they can get them up to speed. You know, McCaffrey catches a ton of passes, so I feel like the little Jimmy Garoppolo dink and dunk. Out of the it's back, perfect. Perfect for him, right? Yeah. Now, um, I, I do want to play this. Do we have the audio here, Ladrick? Okay, not great, but that's fine. Um, there was an incident last night in a game where the Arizona Cardinals put up 40-plus points and got a victory. Kyler Murray flipped out on Cliff Kingsbury, his head coach. And the reason he did it was because Cliff Kingsbury initially was flipping out on the sideline. <laughs> and when you saw Kyler Murray come over, he was very loudly and demonstratively mouthing the words, calm the F down. Calm down. Calm mm-hmm. I think he said, calm down, bro. Oh, God. You King, say, say that to your that's coach. when you know. But Kingsbury. That's, that's when you know you got a young coach. That's right? why I always say. I'm just saying that to Pete Carroll. Like, you think anyone's, or you think anyone <laughs> has ever? You think anyone has ever said, calm down, bro, to Bill Belichick <laughs> or Andy Reid? No. 
But you no, can do... you calm down, son. Yeah, like, but Cliff Kingsbury looks like a bro. You can call him a bro, justifiably. Anyway, can we play the – what do we have here, laddie? Set this up for us. What audio do we have from the Arizona Cardinals last night with Kingsbury and Kyler Murray? Well, like I said in your ears, not great audio. It sounds like it Terrific. was uh, recorded in the hallway outside of the press conference. But here's Kyler Murray talking about the incident. He's uh, he's real animated on the sideline sometimes. So it's always, you know, it's never, it's never, you know, calm down. We're good. You know, we're going to make it right. Um, we ended up scoring, so that was good. So I was watching one of the standout because everyone was reacting to this. And the general consensus from the football pundits is that Kyler Murray wants Cliff Kingsbury gone. <laughs> he's like, I want this guy to no longer be my head coach. And he's got that clout now. Yeah. He's the guy, a quarterback. He signed for forever. They invested like a quarter of a billion dollars in the guy. So I would They've say they've invested quite a bit in Kingsbury too, but right, but less. But yeah, paltry compared to what they've invested in the quarterback. So now, now all of a sudden, as we wrap this thing up, you've got a division where uh, it's completely up for grabs. You've got the defending Super Bowl champions in the Rams. Mm-hmm. You've got a 49ers team that just made one of the biggest midseason trades in recent memory. You've got an Arizona Cardinals team that is in complete disarray and, you know, maybe has a coaching crisis. And then you've got the plucky Seattle Seahawks who are just kind of hanging around mm-hmm. with Geno Smith, the most unlikely story in the league for how well he's played, and a team that has defied all expectations. And I got to say it, I do agree with you, is kind of likable. Yeah. They are. They're going to have a tough, tough opponent going down to L.A. to play the Chargers. I know the Chargers have been a little inconsistent, but this is still – a really good team, and the Seahawks will be on the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to do some Ask Us Anything? We've got a couple minutes here before we turn things over to Kevin Woodley to get back into the Canucks talk here. Uh, I got one from Chayton in Surrey. Just came in, as a matter of fact. Ask Us Anything. We can all weigh in. I think it's all, uh, you'll have something to say about this one, Ladrick. Ask Us Anything. Which position is most unpredictable season to season in terms of predicting success? Pitching in baseball or goaltending in hockey? Well, it's goaltending. I think the stats back that up. The the, 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 it's more the variability of yeah. a guy having good, bad, good. Pitchers have a little more control, I think, over their environment. Goalies have zero control over their environment. That's really what it comes down to. What about psychologically? That's what I always wonder. Yeah. Well, everyone compares goalies to different positions, or, or you're lonely like a pitcher out there. Mm-hmm. But I, I like to compare it to like you like to golf. bring up the golf swing, yeah. or even like a, a, a hitter's approach at the plate. Uh, you know how wildly the players can go on streaks in baseball mm-hmm. in, in terms of hitting. So and that's how they adjust their techniques sometimes. Hitters, yeah, and right? and what you're doing at the plate is you're watching a fast moving object coming in, and you're yeah. trying to time it. What are you trying to do as a goaltender? Mm-hmm. The exact same thing. So that's that's sort of what I compare it to. It, that is that. You know what? I've never thought of that comparison, but it's a great comparison too. And you see, I mean, you've seen some really good baseball players go on crazy hitting slumps. Like I guess the most recent would be maybe Altuve. Yeah. Like who looks like the playoffs? He hasn't got it. He doesn't. Yeah. He's just up there. He's just like I'm just gonna swing. Just swinging his right? bat. Like this, you might as well have his eyes closed. But you can tell the times. approach is off, right? The approach yeah. just isn't there. And mm-hmm. sometimes goalies lose that approach. They lose right. that focus. So yeah, it's it's a huge part of it. Uh, any other ask us anything that you flagged? Uh, Trey and Victoria. <laughs> this is a really good one, actually. Ask us anything from Trey and Victoria. If the National Hockey League allowed coaches to be traded, which two teams and coaches would benefit the most from a coaching trade? Well, didn't the Canucks basically do a Canucks or do a coaching trade? The Tortorella Vino? Yeah. 
Yeah. And they got matching contracts. That didn't go over well. <laughs> went, you know <laughs> what? It was, yeah, it went well for New York. Vino was great there for a while. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting one. So what would a the Canucks right now? Everyone will want to trade torts, right? You'll everyone will want to trade torts to a team that needs a kick in the butt. Like Vancouver? Toronto. <laughs> Could you <laughs> torts? A torts Boudreaux trade would oh, be. Oh, by by the way. Get get uh, if if you're not in, already inundated with Nick Robertson oh, yeah, uh, talk, right. but man, he had a game last night. Like what a terrific showed up story. His, showed up his bro. Dallas signed the wrong Robertson. Yeah, it looks right. like. Well, that was a that was a different story between the Canucks overtime and the Leafs overtime. The Canucks overtime, you had two pretty slow players forwards caught out on a long shift in JT Miller and Brock Besser. And if you saw Nick Robertson's overtime goal for Toronto, not only did he score the winning goal on a one-timer, he made the key defensive stop. Mm-hmm. And it was Jamie Ben that carried the puck in into the Toronto end and made a pretty risky move to the middle. And then Nick Robertson got the puck off him on a great second effort, actually. Started the odd man break the other way and ended up getting the puck back and scoring. And it was, I mean, listen, it was a terrific story, right? And the Leafs needed that, man. They needed a win like that to feel good about themselves because the furor in Toronto over the last little while about Sheldon Keefe's comments and walking back those comments and then saying it was a media thing, which I think made him seem even worse, right? Like, don't worry about the media. Worry about your hockey team. Don't worry about what people are saying about you worry about what your players think. Sheldon Keefe, I was sitting there going like, is he cracking right. under the pressure? Like, is 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 are we are we seeing a guy who's absolutely cracking under the pressure? Uh, he he sounded like one of those guys that just well, we made the joke yesterday. Left the eighteen messages on the the voicemail from swingers. Like it's it's just felt like I'm like you got to stop talking. You got to stop talking. I'm guilty of that sometimes too, though. I kind of feel bad for Sheldon. You're paid to talk. Though. By the way, uh, that was Robertson's season debut last night. I didn't realize that he hadn't been in the lineup for the Leafs. That's a pretty nice just, hey, we'll throw him in the lineup and he will be the game breaker that we needed. He should have been in the lineup, but I think the salary cap Was kept him out thing? of it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, Matt and Abby ask us anything, non-sports here. If you were convicted of a major crime, how many of you would feel able to represent yourself? What, yeah. Ted Bundy? Yeah, I would. I didn't even go to law school. I would, I would do the, I'm just a simple... Everyday no, civ- you wouldn't. Everyday, no, you wouldn't. Everyday civilian. I don't know the law, but I no. know right from wrong. That's no. what I, that would be. Matlock was on in the bar. The sound was off, but yeah, I got the gist, <laughs> I got of, the gist it. of it. Yeah. I watched uh, Larry I Flint lo- versus the World recently, and I, I, I would love to defend myself. Crazy there in that in that movie. I would love to. I would love to be. You don't even lawyer. know the rules. That's the best part. I have a certain. You would charm. get a dressing down from the judge on like an hourly basis. They call it charm, a certain naivete that'll win over the jury. Be like, like Ricky, just... Ricky from Trailer Park Boys. He wouldn't be able to stop swearing the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a highball in my hand the yeah. entire time, <laughs> sir. The clinking is very distracting to the jury. I know I couldn't. I would be very uncomfortable doing that. Yeah, no. I would love it. I mean, if it was, if it was for something not serious. The text said like, major crime. So. Right, but like I mean, like a, like a fun major crime, like embezzlement, <laughs> right? Like I would be like, yeah, I and then I I do like the the Robin Hood thing. I didn't know I, I couldn't do that. I robbed from the rich. Mike Helford I, has been handed a historically long <laughs> charge. They actually gave him more than the recommended sentencing for wasting everybody's time. Ask us anything unsigned. 
with that Tanner Pearson penalty late in the third period last night, I was wondering if you guys could envision Connor Garland getting scratched next game. No, I I, I don't. I don't think Connor Garland's going to get scratched again. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Hoaglander gets scratched again. I wouldn't be surprised if they went with the same forward group against the Buffalo Sabres as they did last night. A lot of people are all over Tanner Pearson. I would not be and surprised I get if Tanner Pearson's and I, out. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if Tanner Pearson was out. But then you're like Tanner Pearson's got a different role on the team than Nils Hoglander. Right? Yeah. Often Tanner Pearson will be out there in a checking variety or But is he doing is he playing no, the role no, effectively? No, he's he's That's he's not. Thing, but right? but coaches will always give more rope to the veteran that's done it before. I think we've seen from Bruce Boudreaux, he doesn't 100% trust young players, right? Like Nils Hoaglander had to play his way into the lineup and is still a healthy scratch. Jack Rathbone cannot get into the lineup. Yeah, and I mean, part Boudreaux's of this, old school in that way. And he's also coaching to win in his, a major yes, way right he's now. he's coaching for the life of his team right now. Yeah, and maybe his coaching career. I mean, honestly. This sure, is, of course. He's in a contract here. Would anyone predict it. right now that Bruce Boudreaux will be back next season? I sure wouldn't. They got the extension at the ready. Like, you just got to win what one. What would the odds be on that right now? If you were an odds maker, plus 300 that he's back? I was going to say plus 800. 800? That might be a bit high. You'd, you'd be an extreme odds maker, I think. You're kind of like, wow. Just absolute chaos. Map, just chaos. <laughs> They're like, we love the guy. He's a risk taker. But we're also going bankrupt because of all of his very asinine lines. Um, here's the thing with Boudreaux, though. Going back to what we were talking about, the, the healthy scratches. Remember when he scratched Garland? What was the line that he gave? Uh, he could have picked a lot of guys. Yeah. Right? So th- that, to me, opens the door to a myriad of possibilities mm-hmm. like you, you said well Pearson plays a role yeah but not especially well yeah so and at this point such a costly penalty but at this point if even you, if he was a bit unlucky like that was such a costly penalty yeah but at this point like you've already you've already scratched Garland and this these are healthies Garland Burroughs Hoaglander it doesn't really feel like anybody's off limits they're not gonna look they're not gonna scratch JT Miller on Saturday that's off limits it just is I don't really want to explain why. I think everyone knows. You know, everyone knows, right? But God, it'd be fun though. Oh, I mean, it would, I would come into work uh, on Saturday, right? I'd I, leave the Elton John concert yeah. just, to, just to see how it I'd played like, out. I got just give me five minutes. I got to run across the street. Elton and see. John would be like, "Oh, yeah, JT Miller just going to <laughs> stops the concert dead in the tracks." He's like, "I shouldn't have worn this JT Miller jersey." <laughs> okay, break time. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk to Kevin Woodley from NHL.com and In Goal Magazine. Uh, we will talk about your Vancouver Canucks as they return home to make their home opener on Saturday against the Buffalo Sabres, a game that we're going to give away tickets to. All you got to do to win them is send in and ask us anything or what we learned, hashtag them WWL or AUA. The Dunbar Lumber text line is 650-650. You are listening to the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Time now for Sportsnet 650 traffic from the City News 1130 Air Patrol. Now Zuccarello again, right circle, waiting, down low for Kaprizov. Shoots, Demko makes the save, rebound goes wide of the net, comes back to Kaprizov, he scores! 
We know we're capable of what we're, what we're capable of doing, and when we do turn it around, it'll turn around for a long time, and just want to do it quick. 7.35 on a Friday. Happy Friday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are also brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. To the phone lines we go. He joins us every second Friday here on the Halford and Bruff Show. From NHL.com and In Goal Magazine, Kevin Woodley now on the Halbro Experience on Sportsnet 650. What up, Kev? Uh, not much. How are you guys doing this morning? Are you excited? Are you excited to come on and talk about the only winless team in the National Hockey League? 32 teams in the NHL, Kev. 31 of them have at least one victory. And then there's the Vancouver Canucks. Ofer in the win column. Yeah, I, I think uh, even those of us who issued warnings of caution uh, about some of the high expectations around this team didn't envision this bad a start. Um, yeah, I mean, combination, I think, of you know missing some, some key guys at the beginning of the season. Uh, I, I think preseason and training camp felt unsettled I've talked about it a little bit I I don't know how much attention it's gotten in this market but like we're we have media availability today with Bruce after an off-ice workout for the players is my understanding and it's at Scotiabarn like if they're still not in their building full-time because of the renovations um you know like like some questions need to be asked about for a team that desperately needed a good start, how unsettled this whole preseason and training camp and into the start of the season felt and how much of that is, you know, these renovations. And, hey, listen, if if they're as nice as they're supposed to be, by the end of the day, everyone's going to be happy about it, happy players, and, and hopefully as things start to turn around, it becomes forgotten. But And I know they were significant, like they've rebuilt the, the uh, workout area, the offices for the coaches, medical staff, everything. So this isn't quite as simple. But the Colorado Avalanche played until their building for two more months, completely renovated their dressing room, and had it had it open ready for opening night. So, um, you know, it, this is not the reason they're losing. But when you looked at all the factors going into the season, the fact that the defense was the same, um, I found it hard to ignore some of the comments uh, in terms of management and coaching, and maybe not being on the same page. And then you just added that to the mix. Like there were signs here that this was not going to be an easy start. Not, never mind a five-game road trip. And oh hey, the Buffalo Sabers are rolling, and the Carolina Hurricanes are next. So uh, thought last night's game was better. There were there were better parts of that game. Now they just frankly, you got me on to talk about goaltending. They need a little better. Thatcher Demko's save percentage eight sixty one. Is that reflective of his play? Uh, his play is below expected, um, but his save percentage being that low is also uh, a reflection of having, I think it jumped a little bit last night. Um, it is now the ninth lowest expected save percentage out of 60 goalies who have played in the NHL this season. It was the fifth lowest. In other words, he hasn't played up to his standard. He's actually played below average, but 
his sort of environment is also, like I said, the ninth worst in the NHL. Like they, they've given up a ton. The Edmonton game in particular, I know the shot totals were low, but the high danger chances sure weren't. Um, saw it again in Washington, 10 high danger chances against, I think it was eight last night. So uh, it, it's a bit of a combination, Jason. Like I'm not, not pretending he's been good. He hasn't been good enough. He hasn't been playing up to the standard that he himself has set. Um, and for a team that was built to rely on elite goaltending, they need better than average. Um, but part of that number is certainly uh, what's going on in front of him is baked into that a little bit. And so it, to me, it's a combination. Um, you, can, you can say that without excusing the play, and that's certainly not what I'm doing right now. Um, there are elements of his game that, and, and reads that just haven't been sharp enough. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, without getting too technical, what are you seeing from Thatcher Demko that he could improve, that, you know, the things that he can control? Uh, I mean, the, the biggest one, and this is technical, is is um, sort of entries and exits of the post and the timing and the decisions. Uh, I don't know if anybody's broken down that second goal last night. Have you guys talked about that one and, and what led to it? No, go for it. I mean, essentially, uh, Kaprizov's coming down the wing to the hash marks, and I know everybody looked like, oh, maybe he didn't see it, and, and maybe he didn't. Maybe the release was hidden by his defenseman going out to it. But if you watch as Kaprizov hits the hash marks, Thatcher's actually starting to go into his post. He's moving to his right to enter what we call reverse VH or RVH, that, that sharp angle technique where you, you drop that, that post side leg to the ice and use the inside edges and anchor and you lean up against the post. Um, he's actually moving to his right as Kaprizov is passing that into the middle. And so he's late getting out and getting on that puck in the middle. And that's just, to me, that's anticipation versus tracking. That's starting to set up, because this is my system, this is how I play it, um, starting to go into a sharp angle expecting Kaprizov to carry that puck down to the goal line, near the goal line where it becomes relevant and going into it a little early and you get caught moving the wrong way. Um, the other part, and, and I'll, I'll get technical just because it's the same technique. Um, listen, these goalies, their system is to be in that position, that reverse VH position a lot more often than, than many around the league. Uh, and it's works. Like I'm, I'm I'm sure as hell not going to come on here and say in Clark's system doesn't work because um, it does and it has. But right now, as the play comes up the zone to the point where that's no longer a sharp angle play, uh, to me it looks like that you're sitting in it and staying in it a little longer. The Carlson goal in Washington is a prime example. That pucks up near the hash marks uh, on the outside, and he's still in a reverse VH. To me, when I watched him last year, uh, that's a play where he's in his post, and as soon as he sees where that puck is headed or where it arrives, he's bang, up, top of the crease, set, square. Um, and I just find that, that tendency to sit in it. When it's in the corner, I have other goalie coaches like, why are they still on their knees when it's in the corner? I'm like, hey, listen, this system works for them, and they execute out of that position as well as anyone. They normally are quite active in it. They don't, it's not a passive position for them. But as it moves up to the zone and it's no longer a dead angle, there's been several instances this year where sitting in it um, or staying in it seems to be a little costly in terms of beating the play to the next spot or in the case of the Carlson goal, just getting caught uh, in a position where, where you've got exposure as the puck gets higher in the zone. Um, he's in it again in the Kaprizov goal, the overtime winner, but I don't think you blame that one on him. That's one of those weird ones where the puck is shot to your right, you're expecting it to go off your blocker and keep going that way. But because it catches just the inside of the blocker, 
it goes completely to your left. So you can see him actually load up that left skate like he's going to push, and now he realizes the puck's to his left, and that just now you're into a bit of desperation mode. So um, it, part of it, it feels like it's just, you know, everything that could go wrong does go wrong, but part of it, you know, it seems to be tied to that position. Again, even the even the tying goal in the power play, he's going into his post, into a reverse VH on the deflection, and normally where he'd hammer into that hard and have that short side sealed, it almost looks like, like he's anticipating um, Zuccarello bumping that into the middle, and so he's going yeah. into the post to pop off it, and so instead of a strong seal, and I think maybe that pass from Kaprizov on that power play goal might have been a little hidden by the defense, and so he's a little late there. Mm-hmm. And So just, you know, one time you stay in it too long, it costs you. The next time you don't go into it hard enough, it costs you. It feels like there's a little bit of that everything going downhill against Thatcher Demko right now. Uh, but the fact so many of them are tied to post-play execution or post-play decision-making, uh, at this point it's hard not to have that jump out a little bit. I mean, that was a brilliant tip by Zuccarello. Oh, I, I didn't 100%. think the pass had enough pace on it to do what he did with it. And, you know, you get to credit the players on and, the and, wild. The Kaprizov showed up. Zuccarello showed up in, in, a, yeah. in, a, in a big, big way. Um, I want to just take it away from goaltending just for a bit to get your ideas on this. And Laddie's shaking his head because we're going away from the goaltending. But the, Laddie's always shaking his head. He is. He's, he's actually he, uh, he's a little bit disagreeable. But uh, we like that about him in some ways. Uh, JT Miller, what are the Canucks going to do with this guy? What are you seeing from him? I mean, it's a, short, it's a short-term and a long-term problem, but let's deal with the short-term problem because right now – uh, you know, and, and, and Halford and I have been talking about this. Like, he's not just like kind of struggling where you're like, oh, he's kind of snake bit out there. Like, he's a liability out there. Yeah, I mean, probably not a great sign when your president of hockey op says that everything will be okay once we once we attach, uh, you know, Ilya Mikheyev, a defensive winger, to him. Yeah, uh, that, I did notice that, that, that too. That, that will help him. Um, you know, when you pay a guy eight million dollars, and hey, listen. I hate to come back to that, but like that's the reality now, right? Like that's once you're, and you know, we saw it with Patterson last year. Like once you enter that stratosphere, that's that's sort of how you're judged. The expectations are higher. You're supposed to be the guy that helps others, not the guy that needs a crutch on his wing, right? So um, it's a little harsh, but I, you know that's that's what comes with comes with the paycheck, frankly. Um, how do you fix it? Like I think obviously, you know, de- defensively, adding Mikheyev, I was a little surprised, like everyone, as is. I mean, it was a pretty common reaction to see him out there with Brock in, instead of Mikheyev in, in the overtime if you're trying to build that chemistry. But, you know, I mean, at the same time, you know, maybe maybe with Brock and being in Minnesota, maybe they thought maybe there was something there, a chance to go out and, and win the game rather than worrying about losing it. But the thing about – you talk about short-term and long-term. The part that leaves you scratching your head a little bit, yeah, it's not happening offensively. But the stuff that jumps out in terms of defensively and all the, being on the ice for all the goals against, like that's the stuff that was there all along. Those were, you know, there's not a lot of perfect players. There's no perfect players. But when it came to identifying the flaws in JT's game, like that was it. And so none of this should be, maybe the degree to which um, they're getting burnt by it is a surprise. But, but overall, it shouldn't be a shock. Like this, this, this is the player. And he does a lot of great things. Um, offensively, and he's capable of that. But defensively, this is kind of what you've had, and, and that's why, you know, it felt a little bit like maybe just you know 
critical media guy, but when we had that opening day media session with JT and he came out and he talked about the players he admired and 200-foot players and everything, like, and it became a really nice story and a really good narrative uh, around that opening day. Like, I was on the radio, I think it might have been with you guys next morning. I'm like, talk is cheap, man. Like, mm. defense is hard work and work rate and attention to detail. And those things haven't always been present in that end of the rink for him. And so expecting a, a, a switch to suddenly flip, um, you know, I, I wanted to see it. And the reality is, you know, five games into the season, we haven't. And so it's on the player now. And it's on the coaching staff to put him into positions, and maybe a McKayev helps with that. Um, but it's on the player to work with video, to work, to do the extra things that are required to come that 200-foot player. It's not, a, it's, it's, not a, it's not just a switch you flip. Mm. You have to be committed to that. Like, that requires video. That's not just going out and, like, trying to have your head on a swivel. Like, the players that, that dominate on that, like, they put the work in. I don't think it happens by accident. And so we're not behind the scenes. Hell, we haven't even been into the room yet, to go back to my first point about it not being ready. Um, but... You know, that, those are the kind of things that are required to become that type of player. And, hey, I guess we got another seven years and, you know, 77 games to see if it happens. Uh, but I was a little less optimistic despite all the lip service that was paid to it at the start of the season. We're speaking to Kevin Woodley from NHL.com and Ingold Magazine here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Kevin, we got about 30 seconds to a minute here. I just wanted to shift focus to the Buffalo Sabres, who are going to be here on Saturday for the Canucks home opener. They just beat... Edmonton and Calgary, both in Alberta. And it was uh, Eric Comrie, a guy who I'm kind of familiar with by name, but not really by reputation. 930 save percentage. The Sabres are surprising. He's kind of leading the charge here. Uh, Real quick, can you let us know about Eric Comrie and what to expect? Should he get the start on Saturday in Vancouver? I would expect uh, you're going to get like one of the best skaters in the league. Uh, I remember 18, 19 years old. Like, like, like even when he broke into the league, uh, coaching the American Hockey League, like years and years ago, telling me that he might be the best goalie right now in the league as a rookie in the NHL along the ice. What's taken a little time is sort of developing, you know, sort of the ability to hold water on high shots and open looks, and so. Um, it hasn't been a straight line for him. We saw the waiver claims all over the place. Eric's a guy like. I'm biased on this one because I've known Eric since he was 18 or 19. I've known the coaches he works with. He's a guy up in Kelowna with us in the summer. He moves exceptionally well. He's got great patience on his edges. For a while, it was just about opportunity. He's finally got it for the first time this year, and so far, he's really making the most of it. So, again, I'm totally biased on this one. I thought this was going to happen a lot sooner. I thought Eric Comrie, from like a what I see in a goaltender standpoint, going to be geez do I need need to reevaluate what I'm looking for in a goaltender because it hadn't happened to this Mm. point Um, but now that he's got this opportunity and he's making it happen uh, maybe I guess I was I was I was not totally wrong it just took a lot longer than I expected I think he's always been capable of this everybody's path sometimes heads in a different direction his just took a little longer to get here that's uh, future Canadian men's national team Olympic goalie, Eric Comrie, we're talking about here on the Halford & Bruff Show. There's nobody else. <laughs> Kev, thanks for doing this, bud. We appreciate it. Enjoy the weekend. The we'll, best, do, we'll do this again soon. Thanks. That's Kevin Woodley from NHL.com and In Goal Magazine here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. We're running a tight show today. We left some time here to do a couple Ask Us Anything because it is Ask Us Anything Friday. Go. Randall in Abbotsford, Ask Us Anything. What are your realistic expectations for Canada at the World Cup. Win the whole damn thing. 
It's less than a month now. I think it's a month less a day yep. uh, until the World Cup. So Qatar, excited. So Ecuador. Excited. So excited. That's the first game, Qatar and Ecuador. Not excited about that one. But the rest of the tournament I'm really excited about. I think England plays the next day against Iran. And then, of course, Canada opens against Belgium. Canada has booked an additional friendly warm-up game before uh, the World Cup in Qatar. They had already booked uh, a game against Japan just a few days, really, before they were slated to kick off against uh, Belgium. I guess since they're in the area of the Middle East, they're like, we'll also play Bahrain. I think they're setting up camp there, if I'm not mistaken, a mini camp so guys can get match fit. Anyway, Mm -hmm. back to the original question. What's a realistic expectation? That was the question for Canada at the World Cup. All joking aside, win a game. Yeah. Win a group game. I'm, I'm, I think that would yeah. be great. I'm, I'm not naive enough to suggest that going up against the second and third place finishers from the previous World Cup, that Canada has a anything more than a puncher's chance. And you're aware that Belgium often disappoints at these tournaments you're aware that Croatia is getting older like you know the you know the the reasons for optimism but I think I agree with you right like well first start by scoring a goal because that's something they didn't do in 1986 but they have to score a goal to win a game right in the group so I those go hand in hand sure yeah. I, th- I think honestly what's gonna happen in a best case scenario and I hate being this guy but I'm gonna be it anyway is they're probably not going to get a single point. Maybe they'll get a single point off Belgium and Croatia. But the match against Morocco, I, it's all kind of shaping up that that's the quote-unquote meaningless match. Everybody has one in their group stage. Morocco's right? ranked 22nd in the world, too. I know. Like, this but is a tough group, Canada. It's this, oh, yeah, for sure. Very tough. Morocco has a ton of players that are going to be playing domestically in top five European leagues regularly, and they're going to be match fit. But that's the one that mm-hmm. you're going to circle, and you're going to say, can this plucky Canadian team get it now? Best case scenario is they get one point off Belgium or Croatia, and then all of a sudden, that yes. last game is of significance. Mm-hmm. If it's not, then you're kind of doing the Costa Rica at the World Cup where their last game, they're trying to score a goal and win because that's their World Cup. Right. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. You haven't been to the dance in 36 years. you got to have expectations. Just don't have the super high expectations. It's, a, it's an incredibly difficult group. I cannot... You know, make that any more clear to the listeners. I am so excited and so happy that this is happening for Canadian soccer. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so excited. I can't wait for the tournament to start. But I also know that there is a big difference between running it on CONCACAF, which they did, and then going to play Kevin DeBrenner, who's in the middle of a, a <laughs> domestic campaign at, at City. Yeah. Or um, Luka Modric, who's, in, who's a reigning Champions League winner with Real. Like, mm-hmm. Those are elite players playing at elite clubs playing at the highest level right now who's your favorite for the world cup easy to say brazil france i would have said france but they've just been torn apart by injuries and Mm -hmm. witch doctors and a whole bunch of other stuff witch doctors yeah is that a long story yeah it is just look up paul pogba and his brother and oh okay and it's it's a weird yeah they they've got so much google that it sounds like it's there's a lot like trunk and head style there's a there's a lot to unpack Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, we don't have the time because we're up against it. But right. um, you, no, unpack, unpack. You put it this way: you can never go wrong. I remember a guy had the great line about the World Cup, and it was back in 2002 when uh, Japan and South Korea hosted. Mm-hmm. And it was, "You've got the emergence 
of all these African countries, and you've got the Asian countries rising to prominence, and you've got the North American side, this American team. Yeah. He's like, but at the end of the day, just bet on Belgium, or sorry, Brazil and Germany in the final. Yeah. Like, that's all you got to do at every World Cup. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, it usually ends up working out that way. I, Brazil, Argentina, Germany, the usual suspects. I know that a lot of people are high on Belgium because of the added pressure to do something with this golden generation. Mm-hmm. But to me, that almost I'm like, I don't think they need any more pressure. It feels like it's been there for a while. Well, yeah. the World Cup is less than a month away, and let's face it, here in Vancouver, we might need a distraction from the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, the BC Lions, though, are one win away from hosting a playoff game at BC Plays. It has been a roller coaster of a season for the Lions. Yep. The optimism around Nathan Rourke and the winning start and then the sadness and the disappointment over Nathan Rourke's injury, but the Lions have hung in there. They've won some games. They've survived, and now they're in a position to not only host a playoff game, maybe Nathan Rourke is going to be ready to start that game. Mm -hmm. We'll talk to one of our favorite guests, Bob the Moj Marjanovic, coming up next on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.